The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. The teaching text this morning, I almost said evening, is from Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? It's really good to be with you. If you haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grab a Bible, go to Colossians chapter 1, what Lauren just read for us. We're going to be hanging out there. I mean, really, Colossians 1 is one of those passages you can just read and then keep worshiping. I mean, it's so beautiful and so incredible, but we're not going to do that. I'm going to talk for a little bit. Uh, we are continuing on in our series today of really a vision series where we're unpacking over the course of the first couple of months of this year, our vision as a church to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. And really, we said week one that this is kind of a define our terms type of series, that we want to do a lot of, hey, when we say blank, we mean blank. And so we are taking two weeks to look at each chunk of that vision. So two weeks on Jesus-centered, two weeks on family, two weeks on mission. And last week, Garrison kicked us off by talking about what we mean when we say we're Jesus-centered is that Jesus, first and foremost, is our great high priest, meaning that he is our mediator. He is the one that stands between us and God pleading on our behalf. He is our sacrifice, the, the one-time perfect, without blemish sacrifice for sins, and that he is also our friend. That he's not just a great high priest who mediates and sacrifices, but also one who is familiar with our weaknesses, who the scriptures say has been tempted in every way that we are, and yet is without sin. And so we run to him and we bring all of our sin and struggle and pain before him. And this morning, I want to go kind of part two of Jesus-centered, and I want to talk to us about what it means that Jesus is king. What does it mean for us that Jesus is king? Part of what we mean when we say we're Jesus-centered is that we live in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ with him and under his rule and reign. So that's what we're looking at from Colossians chapter 1. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll see where the Spirit takes us, huh? Sounds good. All right, let's pray. Lord, we uh, once again are so grateful to get to be in your presence, the presence of one another. What a gift to get to, to be here, worshiping you. Lord, we live a lot of hours, we live a lot of days over the course of each week, Lord, but this, this is a special time. You promise in your word that you meet your people in a unique way, that as we come and 
dwelt with the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you meet us here with your manifold presence. So God, I pray that you would not let us just think we're listening to some words or saying some words or looking at some words or considering some ideas. Lord, we are here for nothing less than all of life, Holy Spirit change. Repentance. And growth and love. We need you. We love you, Lord. Would you open our hearts to your word? Let everything else that is not of you fall away, Lord, but let your word remain true. We love you. We need you. Pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So to understand Colossians chapter 1 and what it's talking about and how it applies to us today as we consider Jesus as king, you have to first understand the backstory of this ancient church in the ancient city of Colossae. So this church is planted around 55 AD, about 20 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but not by Paul. So Paul, we know, plants a lot of the churches in the New Testament, but the church in Colossae is not actually planted by Paul. It's planted by a man named Epaphras. Epaphras is in another city, sitting under the preaching of Paul. He becomes a Christian and goes back to his home city, preaching the gospel, leading people to salvation in Jesus, and plants this church. However, sadly, just a few years into being a church, they've got some problems. Like so many churches we read about in the New Testament, false teachers and false teaching have entered into to the church. Now, scholars, if you kind of read uh, the backstory on this, they're pretty debated over what the false teaching is. There's not a whole lot of clarity around what the specific heresies are or what the specific false teaching is. But one thing that's really clear, just because of how often Paul addresses it in the letter, is that the area under attack within the church is the lordship or kingship of Christ. He seems to, time and time again, from Colossians 1 through the end, talk about this reality of, hey, don't forget Jesus reigns. Don't forget, Jesus rules over all things. Now, this isn't at all surprising that this would be a dangerous teaching for this church, given the religious climate of Paul's day in the Roman Empire. So remember, this is a society at the time which prided itself on religious pluralism on worshiping a whole host of false gods, of welcoming in and being inclusive of all of these different backgrounds, all of these different gods from all of these different nations. So much so, in fact, that one of the kind of things that they would do in the Roman Empire is every so often, philosophers and scholars and kind of the leading Roman thinkers would have this kind of uh, think tank where they would invite people from different nations to basically say, hey, here's my God and here's why you should include my God in the worship of your pantheon of gods. Think like Shark Tank for religions, right? Like they would come pitch, here's our God, should you include him as well? And so you were not only allowed, but encouraged in the Roman Empire to worship a whole host of gods, as long as all of those guys were su- gods were subservient to Caesar. The cry of the Roman Empire at that time was, quote, Caesar is Lord, meaning he's not only a political leader or political ruler, but he is the, quote, king of kings and lord of lords, as the ancient texts say about him, that stands above all of these other gods. So you're welcome to worship all these gods as long as it's under the banner Caesar is Lord. Here's the problem. Followers of Jesus have never worked that way. They will not bow the knee. They know, as Peter says in his famous words in Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else. 
There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we're not going to include Jesus in the list with the others. We're not even going to put him over and then include all the others beneath him. He stands alone. He is the only God, the one true God and King. In fact, in direct contrast to the decree of the Romans, Caesar is Lord, the very first creed or the first kind of rallying statement of belief for the first church is, quote, Jesus is Lord. And this is the tension at the forefront of the church in Colossae. False teachers leading Christians astray. Worship these false gods. Are you sure Jesus is truly Lord? Is he the only God and King? Doesn't he serve underneath Caesar? And Paul is writing to urge and encourage this church as he says in Colossians 2 verse 8, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him. This rallying cry of the book of Colossians time and time again is going to be Jesus is in fact king. So what does that have to do with us? Well, in some ways, we are nothing like the church in Colossae, right? Chances are, as you went about your week this week, you are not tempted to worship a bunch of false deities, right? Like chances are you were not at work and your coworker was like, hey, I heard about this new sun god. Do you want to come worship him with me? Or chances are your boss didn't call you in for a meeting and be like, hey, either bow the knee and claim Caesar is Lord or we're going to kill you. Right? In some ways, we are nothing like the church at Colossae, but in other ways, we are exactly like the church in Colossae. While we, not, while we may not face a daily pull to consider false gods of other nations, while we are, our city may not put us on a physical stake saying, declare Caesar is Lord or we're going to kill you, do we not every single day face the temptation in our hearts and lives to make something else besides Jesus king? Do we not face the daily pull of whether implicitly or explicitly we are going to give something else worship and lordship in our lives? Daily. Am I going to make my spouse and my kids king or Jesus king? Am I going to make my career and my vocation king or am I going to make Jesus king? Am I going to make uh, my money and my bank account and my economic mobility king or Jesus King? Am I going to make my freedom of choice? Am I going to make my ability to just be whatever I want to be and live however I want to live king? Or am I going to make Jesus King? As one philosopher says, we live in kind of this environment that he calls, quote, project self as modern Western Americans, that everything in our lives is set up to be about us being king and ruler and Lord. And the invitation of Jesus for us in Colossians 1 from Paul is, no, 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 Jesus is king. He is Lord. And so we need this urging from Paul just as much at the church as the church in Colossae 2,000 years ago. And I think this is going to be really helpful for us. It's a beautiful passage. And what Paul's going to do, uh, if you're a note taker, is he's going to work kind of in concentric circles. So if you don't familiar with that, uh, basically he's going to work from the outside in, kind of shrinking down, pointing us to three areas of domain or dominion in which Jesus is king, kind of shrinking his focus a little bit at a time. And so that's kind of what I want to do. We'll hop in together. Verse 15. We good? This morning? That's a lot of background. Everybody all right? I'm a little sleepy. It's okay if you are. All right, verse 15. He, he being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All right, pause here just real quick. This is a side note. This is just my personal thing I have to get off my chest. Um, when he says firstborn of all creation, Paul doesn't mean that Jesus is the first created being by God. All right. A recent survey that came out last year says that 65% of Christians believe that Jesus was the first created being, that God was like, I'm going to create Jesus, then the rest of the world. If you believe that, that's okay. I want you to know that's a heresy, and it's been a heresy for like 1,700 years. 
All right, when he says the firstborn among all creation, he doesn't mean God created Jesus. What do you remember? Jesus is God, right? God can't create Jesus because Jesus is God. From before time began, God has existed. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Son being Jesus, right? John 1, in the beginning was the word. So God doesn't create Jesus. When he says he's the firstborn, what he means is he sits as the heir to God's kingdom. He is first and foremost preeminent above all things. Side note, just wanted to do it. Verse 16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul's first point, his first domain of Christ's kingship is that Jesus is king in the world. Jesus is king in the world. When I say world, I mean, I mean everything, right? All things, everything you see and don't see, the spiritual world and the material world. Everything Paul says was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. He is before or over, above, ahead of all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything you see and don't see in the world exists for Jesus. It's the first reality Paul's going to point us to. And the scriptures say this time and time and time again. I'll give you a few Revelation 17, verse 14, it calls Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says about himself, all authority, all dominion, all rule in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Ephesians 1, says that God has put all things, subjugated all things under Christ's feet. Psalm 2, Talks about how the kings of the world, they plot and they, they think about the ways they're going to take over and conquer. And verse 4 says, but he who sits in heaven laughs at them. Jesus is king over all things. My pastor growing up used to have this really cheesy saying. He used to say, what does all mean? All means all, and that's all all means. Which is cheesy, but true. When Paul says that in Christ all things hold together, he means all things all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth are subject to the rule and reign of Christ. And so when we say we're Jesus-centered, and that means Jesus is king, and one of the areas he's king is he's king in the world, that means that we live in the reality that nothing we do and nowhere we go and no crisis we see in the world lives outside of the rule of Christ. Let me say that again, that nothing we do and nowhere we go, and no crisis we see in the world lives outside of the reign and dominion of Christ. Christ is king even in your job, even in your company, even as you're stocking, stacking boxes in the warehouse, Christ is still king there. Christ is king at the airport, he's king at the gym, he's king at the coffee shop. Christ is still king in the conflicts in Ukraine and in the Congo and in Afghanistan. Christ is still king in economic uncertainty political instability, environmental worry, Christ is still king over evil. Even when it seems like evil is winning in the world or in your life, Christ is still king. He's still working it out to his purposes. I love the way that Abraham Kuyper says it. He says it like this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's not a single domain that Christ does not declare over it mine. Which means if we're going to be a people who are Jesus-centered, living as if Christ is king in the world, that means we are a people with just a little bit of rooted hope. 
is it not? That people would look at us and our lives and say, hey, it seems like the rest of the world is freaking out. Like, it seems like everybody else is kind of going crazy. It feels like everybody else is experiencing all of this. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Right? Like, that's like if you could summarize Twitter. It's just like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And what is offered to us in the world, right? Science, technology, political figures. Now, are any of those things bad in and of themselves? No, right? Good political figures are good. Scientific advancements are good. Advancements in technology. Modern medicine is good. Our kids have been sick for like eight months, it seems like at this point. Technology is good. Medicine is good. But Christ is king. Science does not hold all things together. Politics does not hold all things together. Your preferred political party will not hold all things together. America does not hold all things together. Christ holds all things together. And so if we're living as we're Jesus-centered in the world, what would it look like for somebody to look at our church and go, everyone else is freaking out, but you guys just seem a little bit more rooted. Like you're broken over what's worth being broken over. You're engaging in the world as good citizens. You're caring, you're involved, you're praying, but it just seems like you're rooted. Yeah, because we know Christ is king. And we know that one day he's not going to suck us out of this world as much as he's going to bring heaven down to the world and make all things new. And so we're waiting for that day. And so we're rooted in hope, confident that Christ is king, confident that he is who he says he is. That's the first one. Jesus is king in the world. Number two, kind of shrinks it down a little bit. Jesus is king in the church. Jesus is king in the church. Look at verse 18 with me. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's look at Paul's argument here, right? Christ, through his blood, shed on the cross, has reconciled us, brought us back into a relationship with himself. Christ is the one who has gathered back together his people, the church, right? If you're like, what is the church? The church is the gathered people of God. It's followers of Jesus across the world who have professed faith in Christ, been washed by his blood. Christ now gathers together to God and to each other, and that is the church. And so Christ brings together the church, and then he lives over it as its head. And I think that in that reality, that Christ is the head of the church, that there is a challenge for us, and there is an encouragement for us. Because Christ being the head means two really, really important realities. The first, because Christ is the head, this is the challenge, is that he's in charge. Jesus is in charge. In that time, for something to be the head of something or someone else means that they were in charge of and responsible for that thing. A head is quite literally over something or someone else. A kind of a modern day way we would talk about it is like a CEO is the head of a company, right? Or the manager is the head of their team. It means they have responsibility for and authority over that group. And so if Christ is the head of the church, it means he has authority. He rules and reigns over it. And here's the challenge, which means... None of us are in charge. Let me just push a little bit. It means I'm not in charge. It means Garrison's definitely not in charge. <laughs> He's not here today, I can say that. But it also means that you are not in charge. Christ is in charge. And here's where I see this go bad all of the time, is that folks can start thinking that instead of Jesus being king in the church, they are king in the church, and that church then therefore revolves around them. 
And I think this is really egregious, but also really obvious when pastors do this. Like we, we know these stories, these stories are, are everywhere right now, they're all over the place, and, and I think it's really obvious, right? When a pastor or, his, or the people that he leads kind of make it all about him, they kind of lift up or he lifts up his, the one person because of unique gifts or wirings, ability to teach or leadership or whatever the case may be, and folks kind of start identifying with the pastor more than the collective church family that they're a part of. Uh, one of the things I do a lot when I meet somebody just an easy way in the South to bring up Jesus is I just ask like, hey, are you part of a church? Do you go to church here in the city? And overwhelmingly, the majority will say something like, yeah, I go to, you know, fill in the blank church. You know, so-and-so is the pastor. Now, I kind of get what they mean because at that point, they probably know I'm a pastor and they know about the Secret Tuesday Lunch Club that all pastors in our city all have, all a thousand of us do. <laughs> like Illuminati style, it's a joke. Shouldn't have, I tried, I tried. I'm sorry. Um... <laughs> Stephen, can you edit that? Thank you. Um, but what they mean in that is that they start identifying more with the person on the stage than they do with the collective church family they're a part of. And that can go a whole bunch of really wicked and evil ways. When a pastor believes the church is all about them or when the collective unit thinks the church is all about them. But that's the more obvious one and it's egregious and it's wrong and it's, it's just messed up in every way, shape, or form, and it's worth acknowledging. But I think that's the obvious one. I think the more subtle but just as dangerous one is when the people and members in the church start thinking the church is about them, start making themselves king. And what happens is when we do that is that church becomes a product, and we who attend become the consumer or the customer. And what's the number one rule in any sort of hospitality environment when it comes to the customer? Customer is king, right? Burger King, BK, have it your way. But this goes really poorly whenever we begin to take this posture into the church. This is now is about me. It's about my preferences. It's about my desires. It's about my theological bent or leaning. It's my, about my preferred preaching style or method. It's about my favorite worship songs or the ministries I most enjoy or I think are most beneficial to my spiritual health and my project self. And that becomes our filter, right? So somebody's like, hey, how was church today? And you're like, it was fine. I didn't really like that new song. Sermon really didn't speak to me how I wanted. It didn't really resonate with what I was going through. But I, I need you to hear me on this. One, I understand that. I understand in my own heart the desire to make this all about me and the wickedness of my own heart and the pervasive sin of my own heart. But I, I need you to hear, and I need all of us to believe, that when we say Citizen Church is Jesus-centered, we mean none of us are in charge. Jesus is in charge. It's about him. He is king. We do what he asks us to do. We do what he calls us to do. We go where he tells us to go. We reorient our lives around how he tells us to reorient our lives. We try best based on his revelation in the scriptures to orient our church around what he calls us to orient our church around. Because I don't know if you've noticed, there's a million things that we as a church could orient our church around. We could orient it around a certain political position. We could orient it around a certain person. We could orient it around a certain worship style. We could orient it around a certain mission. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. It's a good thing to have good preaching. It's a good thing to have good worship. It's a good thing to have a mission. It's an okay thing to have political opinions. But Jesus is king. So I'm not in charge, and you're not in charge. We are for his glory. We are for his renown. Okay, that's the challenge. But then there's also an encouragement as well. So Christ, as the head of the church, means he's in charge, certainly, absolutely, and amen, but it also means he holds us together. 
Later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul will accuse them of, quote, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. One of the ways you could translate head when Paul says that he is the head of the church in verse 18 is the cornerstone. It's that stone within the building that if you remove that, everything else crumbles. So not only Jesus being the head means that he's the authority, but he's also what holds us together. He is what makes this whole thing tick. Not just the church globally, but this local specific church. Jesus holds citizens' church together. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus never calls us to build a church. You're like, what are we doing here? (laughs) Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say, you're right, Peter, now build my church. What does he say? I will build my church. What do we do? We make much of Jesus. What does he do? He builds the church as he sees fit. That's the pattern. We get it backwards all the time. We make much of Jesus. He builds the church. He holds this thing together. If he wanted tomorrow to shut us down, we'd be shut down. He holds all things together. And so let me just real quick, briefly, I want to speak to the leaders in the room. Community group leaders, ministry team, staff, if you lead in any sort of capacity in our church, let me just speak really directly to you in front of everybody else. And I'm, I'm asking you, if you are in that everybody else category, to hold them accountable and encourage them in this beautiful way. Listen to me, leaders, you do not hold our church together. Like, take that. You do not hold our church together. You don't hold your group together. You are not Jesus and you were never meant to be Jesus. And that should free you to go, okay, yeah, I'm not the Messiah for these people. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the one that has to walk their life with Christ. I'm not the one that has to bring the conviction of their sin. I'm not the one that has to lead them into flourishing life under the rule and reign of God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm just a human in need of the gospel, just like the person sitting across from me in my group, just like the person I'm leading in my ministry. You don't hold it together. And I hope that gives you the freedom to rest in the fact that you don't, but Christ does. Christ holds your group together. What are you? You are in need of love, giving and receiving care just as much as everybody else in your group. You facilitate. You help usher in and lead people into this experience where the Spirit can work and move, but you are not the Holy Spirit. You don't hold all things together. Jesus does. I don't hold all things together. Garrison and I could quit tomorrow. We have no plans to do that, but we could. And it'd be weird for like a little bit while you figure out like who's going to preach and stuff. But after that, you'd be fine. That's my prayer. My prayer is that we could just kind of uproot anybody who calls themselves pastors and the church would figure it out because it's not built on anybody. It's built on Christ. He holds us together. Let me just say for my own accountability, my own encouragement, I wake up most mornings thinking I hold our church together. I think most mornings when I get out of bed and I have two options, I can run to work or I can run to the feet of Jesus. And so often my heart wants to run to work out of the the lie that I think I hold all things together. That I think I hold us together. And so I need your help. I need your prayers. I need your accountability. And I need you to look at me and say, Tim, right now you're making this about you. I'm going to punch you in the face. Like warn me. That'd be great. But y'all, I mean it. How absurd and ridiculous that any of us would think that what Christ died for belongs to us. I mean, what an affront to the glory of God. What an affront to his majesty that Christ would go, no, I purchased this group of people to bring them to myself, and now you're trying to co-opt it and make it about you? Are you kidding me? The evil of my own heart in that. Jesus is king in the church.
king in the world. He's king in the church. Let's talk about the last one. He's king in our lives. Paul shrinks the circle down one more time. Jesus is king in our lives. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, set apart, and above reproach before him. Wait, hold verse 23. He says a similar thing Paul does in verse 13. If you look back uh, right before he kind of goes into this kind of Christ hymn uh, worship, he says this in verse 13. It's similar to what we just read. He says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So look at Paul's argument here, right? He says, we who were once alienated and hostile in mind in the kingdom of darkness have been reconciled and brought into the kingdom of Christ. But notice, in order to, so that we might be holy. We might be set apart for Christ. It's like, think about like the, the claw games. You ever play these as a kid? I used to love these things when I was a homeschooled elementary school kid. You're like, that explains it. I know. <sighs> My mom all the time would give me quarters. It's like that thing you like put the quarter in and then you like move the little claw and it like grabs the little prize and then it moves it over. That's the picture Paul is saying for what happens in salvation. That we don't just assent to some ideas or some beliefs that God actually comes, plucks us out of the kingdom of darkness and like a claw machine, drops us into the kingdom of his son. What a beautiful spiritual reality that we are no longer living under the domain of darkness. We are no longer living under the kingship of Satan or the kingship of self. We're living under the kingship of God. He is now Savior, but also Lord. We enter into his kingdom. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means that Jesus is our Savior, but it also means that he's our Lord. Two weeks ago, right, we got to celebrate baptisms of Megan and Kaylin. And right before we dunked them, we gathered, gathered around the pool and we looked at him and we asked him a specific question. Do you remember what we asked him? Kaylin, you remember? We said, Jesus, is Jesus your what? Lord and Savior. Who is your Lord and Savior? Not just Savior, not just who rescues you from sin, yes and amen, but who delivers you from the domain of darkness and then transfers you to the kingdom of his beloved son. Who is your Lord? Another way you can think about it is that the Bible gives no category for someone who has Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. It doesn't exist in the scriptures. If he's going to be Savior, if he's going to take you from the domain of darkness, take you from running your own life, you got to go somewhere. The Bible says that somewhere is the kingdom of God. Life with God under his rule and reign. I think a, a funny picture of this. Uh, so we have an almost three-year-old named Harper and then a, a nine-month-old or so-ish um, named Nora. And Harper, over the last month or so, has learned her new favorite phrase. So we've been trying to explain to her, okay, Harper, Nora can't do all of the things that you can do because she's a baby. And so one of Harper's favorite games in our house is to play chase because our house is kind of set up like a circle. And so she just likes to run in a circle. We've tried to explain to her, okay, Nora can't play chase because Nora can't walk. And so that's not going to happen. Don't even think about running. She just can't walk. I mean, that's not going to work. And so Harper's kind of picked up on this. And one of the things she likes to do now is ask us for something that she knows she can have but Nora can't have. So she'll be like, hey, hey, dad, or just say like that. That's very like adult. <laughs> She's like, hey, dada, can I have some grapes? And I'm like, yes, you can have some grapes. And she goes, when I was a baby, I couldn't have grapes, but now I'm a big girl. I'm like, you're right. And she's like, hey, dada, can I play chase? And I'm like, yeah, we can play chase. She goes, yeah, when I was a baby, I couldn't play chase. But now I'm a big girl, right? Hey, hey dada, can I watch Blippy? It's like, sure, you can watch Blippy. Yeah, when I was a baby, I couldn't watch Blippy. But now I'm a big girl. And listen, that's the picture Paul is painting. 
yeah, yeah, when I was in the domain of darkness, when I was under the kingdom of darkness, I lived this way, but now Jesus is my king. I've been rescued by his blood. Yeah, when I was in the kingdom of darkness, I used to run my own life. I used to go after all of these things thinking they were going to satisfy me, but now I've been rescued by, by his blood and Jesus is king. Yes, when I was in the domain of darkness, I used to think that what was going to make me happy and satisfy me was the relationship, but I've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, rescued by his blood. Now Jesus is king. Yes, when I was under the kingdom of darkness, I fill in the blank with whatever you want to say, but now I've been rescued by the blood of Jesus. He is my king. You've been captured, carried, transferred. Your citizenship is no longer where you are king or evil is king or Satan is king or the world is king or fill in the blank is king. You've been transferred to the dominion, the kingdom, the kingship of Christ, and he is king. Christ is king. He's king in the world. He's king in the church, and he's king in our lives. Let's finish the passage. Finish this out this morning. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith... If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, not moving on from it, not giving it up, not going after other things, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here's the challenge for us that I want to leave us with this morning. Jesus is king. Will we live as if that's true? That's the question. That's the invitation for us. Jesus is king. Will we live as if that's true? That's the reality, right? Paul uses a ton of past tense for those of us who are followers of Jesus, right? You've been in the kingdom of darkness. You've been transferred. Will we live in light of that reality? Will we live in light of his kingship? Will we live in light of life with God under his rule and reign? And here's what I think the key is. So I said Paul's argument at the beginning works in concentric circles. I drew it for us. World... And then he shrinks it down to the church, and then he shrinks it even more down into our lives. He's kind of working out to end. I think the key to asking and living as if Jesus is king is to work from the inside out. To start first and foremost by asking, okay, is Jesus king in my life? Have I surrendered all to him? Does he call the shots? Does he rule and reign over me? Is he in charge? Do I surrender my desires, my preferences, my feelings, my wants each and every day to him? This is part of why as a church, we put so much money, time, and emphasis on spiritual formation. That's like the heartbeat of our church, unapologetically trying to get you more in love with Jesus, creating space in your life for the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do, make you more like Christ. It's because we believe that change comes from the inside out. We believe it starts with going, okay, how do I create space by which Christ might make me more in line with his kingship in everyday life? So it starts with us. And then what does it do? It flows out to the church. Here's the challenge the Lord has been just working on me kind of into this year. One of the things I'm praying even for my own self is that everything I want to see in our church, that I'm asking him, Lord, would you start it with me? God, I want us to be a praying church. I want us to, to seek your face. I want us to go after you in bold, aggressive, throw our hands to the wind prayer. Okay, but is it starting with me? Lord, I want to be a people that say no to sin, that seek your holiness, that just don't ever play games with the evil of the world. Okay, but is it starting with me? God, I want to be a people. I want us to be a church who go after it in our city, sharing the gospel with our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and friends. When people are like, you go to Citizens, that church is so annoying because they don't shut up about Jesus. I want that kind of mission in our church. Okay, but is it starting with me? 
Do I live the kind of life I want to see in our church? And so it's worth asking yourself that question. What is your heartbeat for citizens? What is your prayer for citizens? When you go before the Lord and you're frustrated about valid things to be frustrated about in our church, and you're like, God, I would love for this to change. Lord, would you change this? Would your prayer then be, but first start with me? Would everything I'm praying for at our church first be true of me? Starts with our lives, it moves to the church, and then it moves out into the world. And then it moves out and begins to affect our neighborhoods, and our offices, and our schools, and our families. This is our invitation. When we say we're Jesus-centered, we mean he's our great high priest, our sacrifice, our mediator, but we also mean he's king. We surrender everything to him and to his lordship over our lives. He's the point. His renown, his glory, his fame, that's our song. We have one song, two chords. Priest, king, priest, king, priest, king. Here's where I want to end. I want to end with a story. Uh, honestly, because I think it's really fun, and I think it shows what I'm talking about. Um, I got past this video this week um, from a rehearsal clip of The Greatest Showman. Anybody seen that movie? Has anybody seen the clip? Apparently, it has 56 million views on YouTube, which is crazy. I've never seen it. It's like four years old, something like that. Um, but what happened is they're, they're working on this movie. The, the writers, the directors, the producers, they're all working on this movie. And they've been trying for eight months to get the cast into the room with the, the uh, studio to basically pitch the idea of The Greatest Showman. They want to sing the songs with the orchestra, with the choir, so they can say, hey, this is the movie. It's going to be awesome. And the lead in that movie, you guys all know, is Hugh Jackman, the wonderful British phenomenon. And so the, what happened is they've spent eight months trying to get them all in the room to do this rehearsal, to do this kind of um, uh, thing. And two days before they're supposed to do this big rehearsal, Hugh Jackman goes to the doctor to remove some skin cancer from his nose. And they ended up having to get 18 stitches. If you know anything about singing, you know that you can't really sing if you've got 18 stitches in your nose. And so the doctor's like, you can do whatever. The two things you can't do is work out and sing. So Hugh Jackman's like, I got this rehearsal. What am I supposed to do? And so what they decided was, okay, Hugh, you're going to stand up and kind of like mimic like you're singing. And we're going to have this other guy who apparently is famous, but I don't care, next to you who is going to sing for you and you just kind of act it out. And so they do the whole rehearsal this way. And Hugh's just kind of like, you know, doing this, but he's not singing. And everybody's just kind of going through it until they get to From Now On. If you've seen the movie, you know that From Now On is like the crescendo song. It's like huge. It's like the big number. Everybody's excited, whatever. And this clip shows Hugh, and he's kind of standing next to the guy who's filling in singing for him. And he's kind of like mouthing the words. And you can tell he's like fighting it. He's like, I want to sing. I want to sing. And then finally, it kind of gets to the second chorus where uh, From Now On is kind of like just this big moment. And Hugh can't help himself. And he just starts belting it out. I mean, he's just going, and like all his like, you've seen my miss, right? Like all of his British song glory, I'm not going to do it, but you know what it sounds like. And the guy next to him is so like shocked. He's so excited. He just kind of steps back and you can see everyone in the room, producers, choir, everybody just starts getting up and dancing. It becomes like, I mean, a de facto worship service. They're so excited. They're all like celebrating and dancing and singing and they're all like doing their thing or whatever. And the guy next to, to Hugh Jackman is so excited that he's like, Wolverine is singing. This is awesome. And he's so excited about it that the whole like rest of the video, the last three minutes, he just keeps pointing at Hugh Jackman. Like he doesn't know what else to do. So he's just like, Hugh, 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 like pointing at him. And everyone's just so excited because Hugh Jackman is singing and he's going for it. And this is awesome. And they're going to pay for the movie and it's going to be a big hit. This is so great. And so he's just like, Hugh, 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 the whole time. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with this. <laughs> That's the picture of what Christ wants to be in his church. That we would step back, that he would step up, 
that we would go, whoa, Christ is here. And we would be so overwhelmed by his glory. We would be so overcome by his presence. We would be so in love with his beauty and majesty. We would read the words of Colossians 1 and go, let's just keep singing because he is before all things, over all things, and in him all things hold together. And we would, like that co-singer, just be able to go, I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to point at him. Because I know he's king. And he's beautiful and he's wonderful and he's awesome. And all I want to do is step back and worship and point to him. That's what we mean when we say Jesus-centered. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is king, that we as a church, when we step into whatever space we step into as a church community, we would just step back and go, this is not about me, it's about him. Hugh Jackman is singing. Look at him. And Hugh Jackman is not Jesus, we know. That's the heartbeat of our church. Man, if we could do that, For 30 years, sign me up. Sign me up for, I mean, come on. Decades and decades. Because that's what we're going to be doing in eternity, is it not? You want to know what eternity is like? Stepping back going, that guy. (laughs) We're about the king. We're about him. So why not do that now as a people? That's what we're doing in church. We're just practicing for what's to come for all eternity. We get a few decades here. Let's make the most of it. Let's worship God. Let's celebrate Jesus because we know that eternity is coming and that's what we're going to get to do forever. So let's get really good at it here, should we not? Let me pray for us and then we're going to practice celebrating King Jesus together. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. And there's so many things that call for the affections of our hearts. But we're not waking up Monday morning tempted to say Caesar is Lord, but we're tempted to say a lot of things are. Lord, we're tempted to say our kids are king and Lord. We're tempted to say our spouses are king and Lord. We're tempted to say our jobs, our careers, our vocations, our wallets, our peace, our suffering-free life, our self-improvement projects, whatever the case may be, Lord, there's so many things that would declare kingship over our hearts kingship over our church, kingship over our world, and yet we know, we say with the words of Paul, Jesus is king. Where we join our voice to the, the echoes of church history, where followers of you from the very beginning, thousands of years have been declaring together, Jesus is Lord. You are king. Lord, and so in every way that we want to make something else king, every way that we want to put something else on the throne of the world, on the throne of our church, on the throne of our lives, Lord, would you tear it down? Would you do what you used to do in the Old Testament? Literally break our idols. Restore us to yourself. Lord, we come with broken hearts. We come with repentant hearts, knowing all the ways we've made other things king but you, Lord, and you receive us as our great high priest and sit over us as king. We worship you. We celebrate you. We love you. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen.